Hello everyone, this is Fred Corn here at Anti Small Talk and today is our 11th episode in our Conversations About Inequality podcast series. And over the past 8 or 9 episodes we've been looking at inequalities using very much an intersectional design, considering the dynamics of social class, age, gender, ethnicity, race, religion, all as interlinking dynamics which create a cage of inequality which our guests are looking to dissect and tear apart using their lived experience and examples from within their classroom practice. Today I'm delighted to announce we have Delali Kalitsi talking to us about inequalities relating to race and her wider classroom practice. This is a fantastic educator, um, operates abroad in Brazil uh, and we're hoping to have this conversation today. Hello Delali and welcome to Anti-Small Talk. Hey, thank you so much for having me. No, it's our pleasure. It's absolutely our pleasure. Uh, so myself and Dali had a conversation initially on social media, and I learned about a fascinating educator who's taught in three different countries. For our audience, do you want to just shed some light on your background, your back backstory? Because I think this an incredible story you've got. You've taught in three different countries. It's incredible. Thank you so much. Yeah, so I'm currently in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This is where I have my organization, the Acoma Institute. Um, which is a liberatory restorative justice education program for black Brazilian girls and um, is an annual pop-up school which we host uh, every December here in Brazil and we're hoping to possibly extend this to another city in Latin America so we make trilingual resources, we uh, collaborate with educators all around the world speaking about restorative justice and we produce content on our platform to engage people in the type of work that we do. And yeah, we're, we're really excited to be doing this work here in Brazil. Uh, before that, I taught in Mexico City and became a member of the Flores de Jamaica Collective, which is an Afro-Latina collective which supports women who belong to uh, Afro, you know, Afro-descendant women in Mexico City and other parts of Mexico. Uh, Before that, I taught in London, my home, uh, and I did a lot of work on exploring how to develop cultural competency in schools and develop uh, a diverse curriculum for children to access and engage in. So yeah, I'm currently in Brazil, hopefully circling back to London in a couple of years. And yeah, just very excited to be here on the podcast. No, it's incredible to have such a uh, a talented and well-spoken guest on our podcast. We've had some incredible guests already, and you'll add to that. It's absolutely fantastic. So myself and Delali began to speak about, well, I think it was the Black Lives Matter movement that really got us talking. And we started talking about racism and and our early experiences of racism. Um, Delali, early experiences of racism. Um, One of our questions from our audience really was about our early experiences of racism. So Delali, we'd like to shed some light on your early experiences. So, some of my first experiences with racism started as young as primary school. Mm. I remember going on a residential trip with uh, my violin group. I used to play the violin when I was in primary school. And we ended up going to the countryside uh, to... I think we were watching some violinists. um, And it was just like a day trip, pretty much. It's one of my first experiences outside of London and like actually being you know, in a community outside of London, not just speeding away on the motorway. 
And I just remember like all the eyes that were on me as soon as I stepped off the coach. Um, I remember there was like a swan or like, I think a, just a bird that I hadn't seen before that I was very intrigued by and I took a step towards it. And as I did, there was an old woman who was like shouting at me from the top of her balcony. She was a few stories high up and she could see me coming close to this bird. And I think she just had the idea that I would do something to it and started shouting at me. And she didn't use any profanities. She didn't call me any racial slurs, but the way that she kind of attacked me, you know, me as a child, I was not threatening, but she obviously thought I was. I knew that she was racist. It's fascinating that you say that because when we talk about racism, we talk about systemic and, you know, uh, sort of hidden, covert, overt, particularly covert racism. It's very tacit, it's very inbuilt and those early experiences, I think my early experience on the playground. So you're absolutely correct. These early tacit experiences of racism for, um, for Bain people, um, they have a, a long symbolic impact on our lives, don't they? So you mentioned this happened at a very early age. You're an educator, I'm an educator, we're going to have many educators listening. How do you think educators can sort of challenge racism, tackle the, the, the elephant in the room that is racism? How can they um, you know, find ways or uh, approach racism in a sensitive way and support others as well? There are so many ways that schools can target racism and racial inequality. I think what a lot of schools are doing is they're playing it very safe at the moment and they're going down the representation route. So it's all about book corners and displays and Black History Month. And whilst these are all a step in the right direction, what we need to be careful about is making tokenistic gestures towards combating racism or dismantling it as an institution so schools are institutions which have played into uh, you know structural problems that we have in society schools operate as microisms of our society so in order for schools to tackle racism and racial inequality we have to really work hard to dismantle those structures and to make some kind of systemic change and a systemic effort towards it you know book corners are a great start but they're not going to be enough schools need to change their policies they need to look at the way that they talk about black and brown students they need to consider their staffing structures and uh you know if their teaching uh, team represent the demographic that they are serving schools need to make sure that they are grounded in community care and support there are lots of schools in london which out which are hosting you know black and brown students however none of these teachers are in community with these types of people in real life none of these teachers are aware of some of the socioeconomic difficulties and factors that are affecting the learning barriers of these students so um, definitely self-educating and continuous study needs to be in there too we also need to see um an anti-racism approach from teacher training mm. we do not really have uh, a systemic efforts for that and that's really important we need to make sure that teachers that are being trained in colleges and in universities and in teaching schools are actually leaving 
um, that qualification, or should I say beginning their profession, ready to understand what anti-racism is and how to tackle it. So, you know, training has to be a part of it too. We really have to look at every thread of how schools are run and analyze how they can benefit black and brown students and how they can become more equitable for them. No, that is really succinctly put. That is that is very succinctly put. You're absolutely correct. It's about targeting those microstructures, isn't it? And teacher training is really important. Teacher training is very important. I remember doing my teacher training. We did a lot of behavior management, loads of differentiation, but embedding sort of inclusive, equitable education policies uh, or ideas in pedagogical structures, it doesn't seem to, seem to be the case. So shifting that change, I did, uh, there was a uh, BAME Ed uh, conference not too long ago, a virtual conference on Teams, and... Um, there's about six, six, seven hundred people there, and they're all saying things like changing, uh, look at the governance of school, um, appraisals and performance management. You're right, the, the wider structure needs to be looked at, it needs to be developed, it needs to be changed, it needs to be rigorously analysed and reflectively changed to, to, to help support our students, particularly our BAME students. And you're right, those learning barriers. Now, myself and Ahmed did a podcast not too long ago. Uh, we were talking about the community teacher and the notion of having a teacher who understand the context of the students in which, you know, they in, in, in the situation they're embedded in. Um, it's really, really important understanding the, the surroundings and the difficulties those pupils face. You know, uh, myself, I've been very, very vocal on the British Pakistani students and um, the detachment many of them and the disengagement many of them have with education. So you're absolutely correct that there needs to be a very conscious move to embed, you know, anti-racist values um, very much top down as well as bottom up. You're absolutely correct. And one thing I really love about you is how solution orientated you are. So, Adelali, for our listeners... What practical steps can we put in place to support our black and Asian students? Obviously, we haven't got a one-size-fits-all. You're from a perspective of turning theory into practice, aren't you? And I'm very much part of that sort of idea as well. How can we support those students? Any tips, any ideas you could offer and support for our listeners? There are so many ways that we can support our black and ethnic minority students in schools. We can, first of all, really try to invest in making trauma-sensitive approaches to pedagogy for them, because this has been an awful year. Um, (laughs) We know that, you know, with coronavirus, black and ethnic minority people, you know, populations were disproportionately affected. So there's the trauma of that, of potentially losing a loved one to COVID or just turning on the television and opening up the newspaper and knowing that, you know, people that look like you, people who are in similar circumstances to you are being most affected by this deadly virus. Um, And then more recently with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement really re-emerging globally throughout the world you know lots of our students have seen graphic content of people like them being murdered you know as they're scrolling on their phones Uh, so we really need to invest in trauma sensitive pedagogy and consider how we can make a trauma sensitive approach to supporting our students because what we don't want to do is overload them with uh, yeah we don't want to overload them with with graphic imagery with trauma pornography with death Mm. we want to be able to support them and help them to understand that we do think that they matter we do believe that they should be seen do we want to engage them with uh, trauma and um 
seen whilst they're at school as a way of proving this? Absolutely not. Um, so that's one thing we could try to do, trauma-sensitive pedagogy. We need staff teams, we need teaching bodies who are invested in wanting to create structural change. So again, as I said, looking at every thread of how schools are ran, we know that racism is a fabric woven into our society, and that includes schools as well. So, you know, addressing the policies, are we, you know, do we have harmful uniform policies? Are our uniform policies disproportionately affecting black students? Um, do we have a policy for exclusion which is fueling the school to prison pipeline are we marginalizing and alienating ethnic minority parents from the school community so asking all of these necessary and challenging questions um, are really important in taking a step in the right direction um, we also, of course, want to look at the curriculum. We know that our curriculum is Eurocentric. We know that it sells a one-sided narrative. Mm. So decolonizing that, but then also making it as innovative and problem-solving and as exciting as it possibly can be, because that's what a fulfilling curriculum should be. And, you know, it, making sure that it's a curriculum that all of our pupils can access and really understanding the intersections of their identities to do that mm. is another thing that we should be trying to do to support black and ethnic minority students but then there's also black and ethnic minority teachers and i think lots of us have seen that our white colleagues are now all of a sudden really passionate about these issues however still you know we are victims of microaggressions in the staff room <laughs> still we are not getting promotions we are not being supported in our careers um, sometimes we have you know stereotypes loaded onto us in the same schools that are claiming that Black Lives Matter. So actually, the care and protection of black teachers is absolutely a black student problem. Mm. The care and protection of Asian teachers is absolutely an Asian student problem. Mm. So looking at our staff bodies and actually making sure, you know, what can I do to support you as a colleague? You know, and kind of not brain draining black and ethnic minority teachers for answers and ideas mm. and perhaps maybe looking inward to do some of that work yourself if you're asking yourself how you can be a better ally in times like this. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. Uh, um, I remember, I think I told you about the story where I was asked to do an assembly on Eid. And uh, being a Muslim as well, um, from South Asian community, I was asked to do it. I didn't feel uncomfortable, went in there, wrote my notes. And you know, before I, I stepped on the stage, I was like drenched in anxiety and I was I was frightened. I was absolutely frightened. And it was that idea that I knew everything. And I didn't. I really didn't. And um, I did the assembly and I walked away thinking, wow, you know, they've, uh, they've thrown me on stage here. You know what I mean? And I think one thing that's really important you mentioned is microaggressions, microaggressions sorry, in the staff room. They are absolutely... Um, absolutely uh, vicious at times they can be very cutting but they're also very subtle as well you walk in the staff room people go quiet or um, a particular time of year a particular celebration goes on and even like I don't know you kind of touched upon it, the whole notion of teacher well-being I've you know been given bottles of wine for colleague of the term I'm a Muslim I don't drink so having that sensitivity is absolutely imperative absolutely imperative you're 100% correct and bring that into our staff and, and make, not making it a banner not not pr not parading Black Lives Matter or anti-racism as something that we do as a token, but not act 
upon it in our day-to-day micro-interactions. You're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. Um, so, Delaney, we've another question here for you, okay? I asked this to, um, to uh, another, uh, uh, another guest on our podcast. Black Lives Matter has come and gone um, as, as a movement. Uh, it's, it picked up steam after George Floyd. Um, it's kind of now, I suppose, kind of like been echoed out, the echo chamber. Um, what are you hoping will be the legacy of this 2020 Black Lives Matter movement? The legacy of the Black Lives Matter movement, for me, is a powerful one as an educator. Mm. Um, I think that it has, you know, really woken up so many of us from a deep slumber. For, you know, for lots of educators of colour, black educators, Asian educators, indigenous educators, Latinx educators, this was really the straw that broke the camel's back Mm. for Mm. us. And it meant that whatever work we were already doing now really had to be amplified and just, you know, strategized in ways to really become more radical and more liberating Mm. for our students. And then for educators who are, you know, attempting and wanting to act as allies in this system, it also means that lots of self-educating has taken place. Um, However, I do think that there is a concerning part of Black Lives Matter Mm. being what it takes for us to really look at racial inequality in schools because now what we have are lots of educators who are very interested in diversity and inclusion Mm. because they can see that this is a potential career stepping stone Mm. and they can see that in you know a year's time or two years time or even now you could probably make a lot of money and Mm. uh, (laughs) and elevate your prospects as someone in leadership if you take up this interest while it's still hot we need to be really careful that black lives matter doesn't become a trend Mm -hmm. uh, because some people who have not been putting in this work are all of a sudden coming out from the bushes and claiming that they are experts Mm -hmm. so i do think that the black lives matter legacy you know has many it's multifaceted it has many connotations for the future of education. Um, what I want it to be is I want it to be something that sparks a revolution in education. No, amen to that. We do need a revolution in education. Uh, we, I work in England, yourself in Brazil, in England, um, in UK, Britain, United Kingdom, whatever you want to call it. We do need a revolution. We need things to change. Nearly every guest I've spoken to, Delali, has said the same thing. We need change. We need change. We need something to spark this change and, and move forward and move away from what we're currently doing. Because it clearly isn't working, particularly here in Britain. Particularly in Britain, as far as I'm aware. The current, uh, the way we, the current education system is operating and works. It's very draconian, very Victorian. And you know, with Black Lives Matter, it's an opportunity for us to embed ideas of inclusion, but not in a tokenistic way. And you're right. Now, I've seen CPDs. I've seen books. You know, I've, I've heard of people getting things published. You know, great on them. But um, inclusion and diversity is, is a culture. It's something that comes on comes in innately rather than something that arrives because of a, a hashtag that's trending on Twitter. You're right. It, it's something that's very personal and we need to harness very carefully and personally as well. Even if you go back onto the idea of whole sort of tokenistic element of things, very recently a babe educator you know, got in contact with me said to me, oh, swear, my school have asked me to lead a Black Lives Matter assembly. But I'm anxious, I don't know what to do. So, again, trying to embed that in a non-tokenistic way 
it's so important it's imperative absolutely and that's you know a, you know a very clear example of how white teachers devoid taking up their own responsibility in speaking about black lives matter because prior to asking that young man if he would like to lead a Black Lives Matter assembly, they should have done a little bit of soul searching and considered talking to him and asking him how they can support him as a colleague, you okay. know? So also seeing black and ethnic minority teachers as humans, these are people that you can support and you can talk to and offer kindness and care, not, oh, are you available to do this next week? Mm -hmm. That is not a trauma-sensitive approach to school leadership. Absolutely. I also think a lot of this comes down to kind of like embedding that sort of sense of self-pride, particularly for our BAME students as well, in understanding the cultures that they're from and also the, the heroes and, and idols and role models that are around them uh, and the ones that came before. So really trying to like develop an understanding of the curriculum and breaking it down and, and considering you know the victories as well as the uh, difficulties faced by BAME people. You're absolutely correct. There's a There's got to be a movement and a shift towards that, and that comes from our, our grassroots sort of work that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And even if we go back to the whole notion of changing our teaching demographic, you know, uh, and we spoke about it earlier as well, the notion of providing, you know, schools with teachers from a variety of different backgrounds, enriching them with diversity, to smallest things like providing, providing prayer rooms, um, certain menu options, the so smaller things, these small things can have a, a massive impact on, on our educators. Then Ali, I'm just conscious of time, and I know, you know, our time zones are different as well. <laughs> I know our times are very different as well. Uh, then I'm just conscious of time, so a question for you, okay? Which BAME educators do you follow, or do you gather influence and inspiration from? I'm a huge fan of Monique W. Morris. She is a researcher and educator who has published a lot of research on how black girls are treated in schools. And she argues that the criminalization of black girls in schools is for profit and for a long-term uh, incarceration of black girls in the United States. Um, I also follow a woman called Eve Ewing, and she uh, recently published some work called Ghosts in the Schoolyard. She really analyzes environmental racism and how that intersects with education. She has published a book about the school closures in Chicago, which is a, a well-known segregated city, and how that impacted the academic life chances of black students in Chicago. Um, I'm a really big fan of Valerie Kinlock. I think she's absolutely amazing. Alison Creel, she's superb. I'm a huge fan of yours. Um, you know, there's, yeah, there's so many educators on Twitter that I'm just constantly undone by every day. I've probably forgotten loads of people. But those are the people that I'm constantly, like, tapping into and trying to understand more about them. No, that is a really fantastic list. That is a fantastic list. There are some incredible people out there, incredible educators out there who bring such authentic uh, energy to the conversation. Uh, very welcoming, very kind, very loving in their approach towards others. Absolutely. Uh, there are some incredible people. Alison's uh, uh, incredible. So, yeah. Um, Delali, normally we finish off with music. I'm very conscious of time again because of our time zones and everything, okay? But because of the intellectual capacity of this conversation, um, let's go down a different direction slightly, okay? What are you currently reading? 
currently reading Cultivating Genius by Goldie Muhammad. Okay. And I highly recommend this book. I think it's fantastic for those of you who are really interested in literacy, layering texts, and um, culturally responsive curricula. She's fabulous. Oh, fabulous. Um, and I'm also reading Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues by Monique W. Morris. And that is a book for the education and liberation of black and brown girls. No, those do do sound like really fantastic books. I'm currently reading uh, British by Afwa Hirsch. That's a, a life-changing book. I've never, oh, never awesome. I've never read anything that's. Mm-hmm. It just speaks to you. The, the the words jump out at you. That's incredible. And uh, I've actually gone for my ninth round of reading the Malcolm X autobiography. Don't ask me why. I'll probably start talking <laughs> about it. Um, I just feel so empowered. Every word, every page I turn is like, you know what? I've got to make some notes. So. I spent hours like analysing one chapter, but there's so, there's so much depth to that as well. But yeah, there's really good material out there, especially on anti-racism. I think uh, one thing I'm yeah. glad a lot of people are going back to the archives, aren't they? They're finding things like Malcolm X and Afwash. They're not books will be published. You know that about Black Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much to learn from like historical books like David Gilmore. And yeah, from like 15 years ago. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's really important that we have these. This in, this inter- the BAME community is a very intellectual community. Although we occupy, you know, in most societies, you know, a lower class position, it's a very intellectual community. There's stories out yeah. there that need to be heard, and there's so many fantastic authors out there. I've been reading um, Natives by Akala, and I think that's been very life-changing. I've well, been his music as well. So I think the fact is there's, 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 there's no excuse not to engage with it, regardless of what background you're from. That's why I really struggle when people say, oh, you know, I don't know where to start. There's like a... Amazon's got like, stacks of books, or just speak to someone. Or, so much out there. There is, and there's so much free material. There's YouTube, you know, there's, there's webinars and seminars and, and lectures, you know. It's not that difficult. It's not. I think that um, when people say they don't know where to start, I would always say to start with yourself. You need to decolonize your mind mm. before you try to move forward in any, you know, in any type of work. Um, and, you know, as you said, there is just so much out there. You go on Amazon, they're giving you suggestions. People have published book lists. There are lots of educators who are constantly uplifting and elevating the work of others that you can follow. So, absolutely, there is really no excuse at this point. And I think that one thing that we fame educators are tired of is the excuses. Yep. yep. You know, I, this, I is, this is the reality for this is personal for us. This is not something that, you know, you might want to or not go and study. You should go and study it. So, yeah, absolutely. I agree. There are no excuses. The excuses leave me uh, so frustrated. I remember someone said, I'm tired. We're all tired. It's been a pandemic. We're, t- we're fed up. We're exhausted. Absolutely. You know, I'm more tired of racism. I'm more t- than, than my work. Yeah. Because I've experienced every day. I don't experience teacher workload on my holidays. But I've experienced, I've experienced racism. It's such a, it's such a frustrating comment, and it leaves me thinking. You know, you're so short-sighted. Like, why can't you just put yourself in someone else's shoes? So, Delali, just to kind of finish off, um, 2020 has been a very unprecedented year. Um, what lessons can you take from 2020? One of the most powerful things that I have learned during this pandemic is that decolonizing is a lifetime effort 
it is something that is multifaceted and an effort that needs to exist within multiple realms of our reality and it starts with you it starts with thyself you need to decolonize your mind before you move on to decolonizing a curriculum or you move on to decolonizing a, a, a program of study you know do you have colonial ideas do you have respectable politics that are really clouding the way that you support your students and are really stopping you from engaging with your students in the most equal and equitable way possible because if you do then you are not really representing that black lives matter in your classroom so you know coded language that we use to talk about black and brown students has to come to an end um you know jokes or in inappropriate comments that we might make about their communities and the types of uh, identities that they may have and that they may share. We really need to make sure that we're not engaging in malpractice when we are discussing and when we are talking about what we want to do to improve their educational life chances. We are not their saviors. They are whole, uh, you know, whole children they are children who have come into education with their own cultures and their own backgrounds they are not deprived of life chances you know i used to hear that a lot oh they don't have uh, educational experiences or they don't have cultural experiences they do have cultural experiences maybe they're not the same as ours but even more to, for us to learn for um you know children have cultural experiences of their own that we need to learn about if it doesn't suit white heteronormativity then that's our responsibility as educators to find out what it is that they're coming to school with so that we can support them and really scaffold their learning from then on out no, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. I think it's really about supporting our learners and making sure that we, 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 we provide support in a way that is holistic and encompassing of all their wider intersectional dynamics, you know, their sexuality, their race, their religion, and, and, and absolutely working towards that sort of perspective. It's, it's really, really important. It's imperative, in fact. So, Delali, to finish off, okay, most important question, okay, what is on your playlist? Well, I love 90s music. I'm a huge fan of 90s R&B. Yes. And since the verses, not last week, but the week before, with Brandy and Monica, I've been listening oh, to loads wow, of Brandy and Monica. Wow, Brandy and Monica, wow. That's, 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 that's old school. Absolutely. I love them. I, I love all of Brandy's songs. I think she's like one of my favourite artists of all time. So I love her songs sitting up in my room. Oh, wow. I've been playing over and over. Um... It's Brandy, Monica, and Ashanti. They're like the original three, aren't they? And then everyone else just comes before or after, like yeah. Beyonce and that. They more like <laughs> I love I love Beyonce by the way. Before anyone kills me, I, I do love Beyonce, but she's more after Ashanti. Ashanti. Oh, like, no, I've said it before somewhere. I think I said it in the staff room, and I got death death stares from that day to the day I left. So I will never mention it. <laughs> like Beyonce is amazing, by the way. That's funny. No, but honestly, thank you very, very much, for, very much for your time. I will leave your um, your bio um, with, with um, in, in the podcast link as well. Thank you so, so much for your time. Yes, Are you planning on doing any blogging or writing long term in the future? Because I think there's definitely scope for it. You've definitely got the capacity for it. You're very, very intelligent. There's opportunities there for you to really, oh, you know, you. link your experience 
you know it'd be really cool if it's a three-piece blog teaching in uh, UK, teaching in Mexico, and teaching in Sao Paulo, and how they kind of. That would be cool. Thank you for the suggestion. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah you know, maybe, maybe. Hey, who knows? Absolutely. The thing is, one thing we're very fortunate uh, with with education, such a big scope for it as well. And honestly, Delali, keep pushing your voice out there, keep being vocal because you're an educator. We need to hear from. You know, for a very long time before it became a trend, we were the ones that carried this work. Absolutely. Um, even if you look at some of your, you know, most famous male revolutionaries, mm. their wives were with them side by side, you know. Um, even if you look at, yeah, you know, if you look at people's wives and people's daughters, or even those who weren't attached to men and, and were still revolutionary in their own mind, we have also been carrying this work for a very long time. Absolutely. So I, I do think that looking forward, it's very important for people to include us in their talks, their discussions, their training, their book chapters and so on. And, and you know, without us, I, I'm not really sure if it's the right type of work, you know. Absolutely, absolutely correct. And again, it's that intersectional approach, we've gone full circle, that intersectional approach where yeah. if we're going to include a BAME educator, we've got to consider the wider, wider dynamics. We can't just say, oh, this is a black or brown face, we're going to include them. We've got to look at the person, yeah. where they've come from, the inequalities they've faced, their gender, their sexuality, their age, and then, you know, provide them with an opportunity to speak. And I've all, people have all said to me, oh, Shrev, you know, you're starting podcasting, et cetera, et cetera. It's all about providing people who were voiceless previously a chance to speak. And, you know, um, yeah. you're an educator who definitely deserves that platform. And hope, fingers crossed, you know, long, long term in the future, we'll collaborate on something else. Absolutely, anytime. I really appreciate you for allowing me to speak and I feel valued, you know, that you considered my voice one to be heard. Honestly, so no, thank you so much for this collaboration. Honestly, you can have one follower, one million. It honestly doesn't matter at all. As long as there's a sense of authenticity there and you're willing to have a conversation that really matters, um, you're more than welcome. So thank you very much, Delali, for your time. Uh, and this has been episode 11 of Conversations About Inequality here at Anti-Small Talk with Shreb Khan. Thank you very much.